You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. God, I thank you so much for each and every person that's here. God, it is a privilege and an honor and a joy to be here with each and every one of them. It's a privilege to, it's a privilege to worship with them, to hear them lift their voices. God, in praise to you. God, I pray that you would be with us today. God, I pray that you would allow our hearts um, to be open, God, to be um, challenged and convicted. Um, today's text is tough, God, and so I just pray that we would be encouraged by being challenged because that means that we're growing, God. And so I pray as Christians that we would grow, Lord, and I pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would move mightily today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. These verses really are verses that keep me up at night. You can turn to Matthew 7, 15 through 23. If you're familiar with them, you know why they keep me up at night. Matthew 7, 15 through 23. This is what it says. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you law breakers. So that's a tough text, and we're going to dive into it together. We're going to look at three main things today. This is how we're going to break it apart. We're going to look at a warning that Jesus gives against false fruit. We're going to look at the warning that Jesus gives against false prophets. And then we're going to look at a warning against false salvation. So first, we're going to take the fruit. I know the text talks about the, um, the false teachers first, but we're going to take the fruit because it says that we can be on guard against the false teachers be- um, by the, recognizing the fruit. So we want to know the fruit, and then we're going to talk about the false teachers. That's what we want to do. So first question, why are we talking about fruit, right? Jesus tells us that it's by their fruit that we're going to be able to discern false prophets, right? And so we're going to talk about them in a few minutes, but we have to first heed the warning of Jesus. And I also, so we're going to understand that so we can see the false prophets, but I also want um, to use this as an opportunity for all of us to take stock of our own spiritual lives. We're going to go through a number of questions that surround this topic. So the first one's this, where does good fruit come from? Right? We've got to figure out where does the good fruit come from? If you look at your text, where does the good fruit come from? Good fruit comes from a good tree. But here's the problem. In the Bible, we're all described as dead in our sin. Right? Without Christ, we are dead trees producing no fruit or rotten fruit. Right? And so if we're a good tree, it's only because we've been given life by the ultimate giver of life. 
So yes, the fruit, it comes from good trees, but the only reason that the trees are able to produce the good fruit is because it ultimately comes from God. Does that make sense? Okay, number two. This is a good question. I hope you're asking this question when you read the text. How do I discern what is good fruit? Right? Is this not one of the toughest parts to try to figure out? Because here's the reality, and you're going to find the same thing that I find. I know lots of people who aren't Christians, right, who are kind and gentle and thoughtful, right? Many of my non-Christian friends, not many, some of my non-Christian friends are kinder and gentler and more thoughtful than some of the Christians that I know, right? So that can't be how we discern who does good fruit, by how kind they are, right? Even though we know, right, that was by kindness leads us to repentance, there's things, but we can't just look at that and say, "Mm, okay, that's how I know. So how can I actually discern the good fruit? So here's the first one what they confess, right? This is the easy filter, right? This is the obvious filter. Do they profess to follow Jesus? Do they say that they are Christians, right? Because my non-Christian friends aren't saying that they're Christians, right? So that automatically disqualifies them. They're living their life, their kindness is for a different purpose, right? It's not coming from Christ. But then really what we're getting at is what do we do when someone claims to be a Christian, right? So here's um, something that's helpful, time. Time is important because sometimes good trees produce rotten fruit, right? Because here's the reality. As Christians, none of us are perfect, right? What we're teaching today is not that you need to be perfect, and if you're not perfect, that doesn't mean you're a good tree. That's not what we're teaching, okay? Sometimes good trees produce rotten fruit because we are, even though we are saved by grace through faith, we are still sinful people. And so time is helpful. Um, This is something else that's helpful when you think about time. Do you guys remember the parable of the sower? If you remember the parable of the sower, right? Jesus tells the parable of this guy throwing out, he's going out throwing seed, right? And that's the gospel, it's the good news. And it falls on four different sets of hearts, right? And in one of the sets of hearts that it falls on, it says that it was the, it fell among the weeds or it fell among the thorns. And when we read weed in the English version, um, we automatically think about our gardens or we think about our lawns, right? But to the average Hebrew reader, they would have most likely thought of a certain type of weed called darnel. This is a type of weed that grew in the wheat fields and it took time to distinguish itself as a weed as opposed to wheat. Darnell is called the evil twin of wheat because it looks incredibly similar and yet it's actually toxic to humans. And so this weed, you can see how similar it looks when it's fully grown. And so it actually took time for them to discern whether this was a weed or whether it was wheat, right? It took time to know whether it was the devil's weeds or the king's wheat. And a little bonus content while we're on the parable of the sower, if you remember the parable, Remember that it fell in four different places, right? But only one produced crops, right? The one that produced crops, that was the person that was saved. Why? Because they were actually producing the fruit, right? There was something different in their life. They were actually changed. But if you remember two of the other three um, places where the seed fell, if you look in Matthew 13, you can look at this. In two of the other three places, notice something interesting. There was actually growth. There was initial growth growth where the seed fell. 
but ultimately they died for different reasons. So there was this little bit of growth, maybe even a little bit of fruit. But Jesus said it didn't mean that the plant had good roots, right? Those plants looked alive, but ultimately they died because over time we saw the reality of the roots. They weren't rooted in Christ. They weren't connected to the vine, right? We can keep going with the biblical horticultural references, right? Jesus has lots of those, right? That's what we need to see. And that's why time is important, right? Because we can see initially, sometimes we just look, oh, wow, I see a little bit of growth at the start. It didn't necessarily mean that they were saved because they didn't actually produce any fruit. Number three, when you're discerning this, and we could make the list much longer than this, but for sake of time, this is what we got. Number three is that motive matters, right? We can follow the things that God has called us to do and do them for twisted, self-serving reasons, and God calls that stuff garbage, not fruit, right? The Christian life can be counterfeited to varying degrees based on how good you are at counterfeiting, right? So we can go and do all kinds of things, follow all sorts of things that God has called us to do, and God doesn't actually call them fruit. And it's because, at least partially, because of the reason that we do them, right? When you're following God and the things that God calls you to do, do you do them just to feel good about yourself? Do you do them to show others how good you are instead of doing things to bring glory to God? Why do you do what you do? Do you stop and ask yourself that question? Do you ask yourself the motive of your heart for doing these things? And so I want you to take a second and take stock of your motives. Why are you here today? What is your motive for coming to church? Does it just make you feel good, right? Is it something that you like that other people see that you do, or do you love Christ more than anything? If you're doing, if you're here today and you're like, you know what, I really don't feel like it today, but I want to do it out of obedience to God, I think that's okay. I hope you don't stay there forever. Sometimes we have to do things that are hard, do things that we know are right, right? But your motive is to obey Christ. That's good, right? Your motive is not of yourself. That's bad. What are your motives? Or perhaps this week, or perhaps this year, when you write your big goal planning for the year, where, what are the motives? Is it Christ? I just want to remind all of us that ultimately God is the ultimate judge of these things, right? I'm not saying that when we're talking about discerning fruit, God's given us something to do, but ultimately we know that God is the one who decides who is saved and who is not. Um, and Jesus, we actually see that in the last chunk of our text, right? He, he puts himself in the position as judge. You can see that in our text. But for us, What's the definition of good fruit? And it's what I put up on the screen here. It's my working definition. I've been wrestling with it this week. If you can think of other things, you can work with it. Um, you can wrestle with it. Um, but I think it's helpful. I think it is good. Um, that good fruit is produced through the power of God, resembling the character of God to the glory of God. I believe that is a really good start for where we actually see good fruit. So first, in the power of God, right? This is through the Holy Spirit. What we do in our own strength, what we produce in our own strength is nothing. It's garbage, right? It's only when the power of God actually moves that fruit is produced, right? When you just do something on your own and God's not in it, it doesn't matter. It's not fruit. 
you can't go and save anybody, right? Who saves people? God saves people. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. When you try to change on your own, how does that go? Not well. When you actually want to change yourself, what do you need? You need the Holy Spirit to come and change you. When the Holy Spirit changes you, then something happens. That's fruit. It's in the power of God. Let's look at this next section. Right? Resembling the character of God. Galatians 5, 22 to 24, right? This is an obvious connection when we're talking about fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I want you to notice what the fruit is. Notice what the fruit is in this text. The fruit is God. Do you see that? Sometimes we just think of this as like, oh yeah, this is just good things that we do. This is not just good things that we do. It's God. God is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is God himself. God is love. God is joy. God is peace. God is patience. He's kindness. He's goodness. He's faithfulness. He's gentleness and self-control. Right? Everything in their perfect form, these things are all found in God. They're not just found in things we do. They're found in the Lord is describing who he is. And so real fruit is found in the power of God and it resembles the character of God. The fruit in your own life is you changing more into the image of God and living that out in a way that resembles the character of God. Right? When you go and love somebody just like Christ loves the church, Right? then you're starting to see that fruit happen because you can love people for all sorts of reasons. But when you do it for that and it resembles God, you've got fruit. So good fruit is produced through the power of God, resembling the character of God and to the glory of God. I want you to remember this. Right, We just talked about this, that motive matters. Real fruit brings glory to God because he deserves it. I want you to remember, what did we start study at the start of this series? Look in Matthew 5. You can flip back a little bit. What is this? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good. What? That they may see your good works. But what's the purpose of the works? That they would give glory to your Father in heaven. That's the fruit. That's when you know you actually have real fruit. When the works that you do don't bring glory to you, they bring glory to God. Then you have good fruit on your hands because that was produced in the power of God. It's going to resemble the character of God and it's going to bring glory to God. That's what good fruit is. And so what does my fruit or lack of fruit Tell me about my life. And so I want you to remember our definition of good fruit and apply it to your own life, right? Not the definition you may have had in the past, right? Of thinking, okay, well, I was a kind person and I made a meal for someone, right? Why did you make the meal for them, right? I know lots of non-Christians that make great meals for other people, right? 
What's, your, what's the actual definition? Do we bring glory to God in those things? Remember that definition. Let me ask you this question. How much good fruit have you produced in your life? I want you to be honest with yourself. Ask God to help you. What have you produced? If you've got nothing, or you aren't sure, or you think maybe this one time I've produced a little, but I'm not entirely sure, then brothers and sisters, you need to consider whether you are saved or whether you are a dead tree. And I say that out of the most kindness I can muster. I care so deeply for each one of you. I don't want this passage to be true of you, of any of you. It brings me to tears just thinking about it. Read the book of 1 John if you aren't sure. God put 1 John in the Bible. The writer tells us it actually. And if you look in chapter 5 of 1 John, he says, I wrote these things so that you would know that you have eternal life. So 1 John's in there basically for Christians to read the whole entire book and say, yes, 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 I know I'm saved. I have assurance that I am saved. In the inverse of that is if you go, not sure, not sure, not sure, no, 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 brothers and sisters, no matter what you've been taught, you are not saved because you haven't been producing the good fruit. The whole book, it goes and it looks at both your doctrine and your fruit. I beg you, go look at that if you aren't sure. And now if you are saved, praise God, right? And you can see the fruit as evidence in your life. I want to ask you this. I want to ask you this. What type of tree are you? Because there's all kinds of different types of alive trees. And some are a lot uglier than others, right? Are you this kind of tree? There's a little bit of fruit on there. It's got a bit of green. Kind of alive, right? And if this is you, right, be honest with yourself. First, praise God. Praise God you're alive, right? Praise God that you're found in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? I don't want to discourage you, but at the same time, I want to encourage you into something greater because I don't believe this is what God's called you to in your life. I want to look like this. I want to look like this. I don't know if you're familiar with this tree or not. Um, An artist named San Van Aken, um, I learned about it through a TED Talk, and he described how he's created a series of these trees that grow over 40 different types of fruit simultaneously. So not only is it beautiful and magnificent to look at, but it would be magnificent to eat from too. Imagine just eating 40 different types of fruit from one tree. And now I'm not sure I feel like this kind of tree right now, right? There's trees all somewhere in the middle. I feel like I'm there. But this is the kind of tree that I want to be. Brothers and sisters, I want to be a tree like this that God would grow me to be, to show off his wonder, to show off his majesty, to produce fruit after fruit after fruit. That's what I want for my life. Is it what you want for your life? And so you might say to me, Mark, I want to be like that tree, but I just feel so much more like that dead tree or I feel like you somewhere in the middle. What do I do? What do I do? Here's what you do. Here's where you start. You obey what you know. That's where you start. 
You obey what you know. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. Right? These are the steps you take. Right? If you say you love God, do what he says. Start with what you know. Right? For most Christians, the problem isn't that we know nothing. The problem is we don't do the things that we already know. And if you're a new Christian and you do know very little, keep reading so that you would know and do as you no, right? Start with one thing that God's put on the front of your mind. Do that. And you're going to start to know that you really love the Lord, that you've actually been changed when you find that his commands aren't a burden. So many Christians find their, the commands of the Lord to be a burden, and that concerns me greatly. Because how can you be changed in your heart and then feel like God not want to do the things that the one who's changed your heart wants you to do? That's concerning. It's troubling, brothers and sisters. God's called us to so much more. God's convicting of me of this immensely this week as I study, as you can see from the weight of the passage. Um, and he essentially showed me this, that the faith that says but does not do is really unbelief. The faith that says but does not do is really unbelief. And I believe this is at the heart of most of our sin. It's a lack of belief that God is greater. That when I look at my own life and my own sin, the branches that need to be pruned at this core, that's what I see. Maybe I can sum it up this way or say it this way. When something evil gives us pleasure, we don't have a pleasure problem. We have a treasure problem. When something evil gives us pleasure... We don't have a pleasure problem. We have a treasure problem. What our heart loves, that's what brings us pleasure. So when sin brings us pleasure, it means we love the sin instead of loving the Lord. And this was so true in my life. I found this out when I was a teen. I was addicted to pornography. And there was only one thing that actually worked. Tried accountability partners, tried software, tried videos, tried everything. The only thing that actually worked was reading God's word and treasuring him more and more. And when the temptation came, it wasn't tempting anymore. It looked like garbage compared to Christ. That's how we kill sin. By looking on the one who took our sin on himself and loving him, treasuring him above everything. If you want to stop sinning, treasure Christ more than anything. That's, that's how sin dies. As we close this section, I just want to remind you that we're not talking about works-based salvation. What we're saying is that true salvation is a true change of the heart, and this produces a change in the works, not the other way around, right? The tree needs to be made from dead to alive in order to produce fruit. And if the tree's alive, it has no choice. It's going to produce fruit. And God's the only one that can make dead trees come to life. Second section, next two are shorter, just so you know. The warning against false prophets. Look at just the first couple of verses of our text. Be on your guard against false prophets. You come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. So what's a false prophet? 
Let's first talk a little bit about prophecy, short version. Sometimes we think about prophets primarily as tellers of the future, right? But prophecy in the Bible is actually primarily a gift of forth-telling, not foretelling. The Greek word in the New Testament that we translate prophecy means to speak forth. So the prophets would speak forth the intention and divine will of God. And so do we have prophecies that um, speak forth the, prof- uh, the intentions and divine will of God and tell the future? Yes, we see those in Scripture. Praise God for those. They are wonderful. But if you go and read the Old Testament and you read all of it, what you're going to read in the Old Testament is you're going to see the majority of what the prophets do is they warn the people about their sin, right? They call them to repent, and then they tell them about the destruction that is coming. God's already warned them the destruction that is coming because he told them in his covenant, look, you follow me, I'm going to bless you. If you don't follow me, here's all the things that are going to happen to you. He, he laid them out for them in the Old Testament. So the prophets are just saying, they're like, look, this is what's going to happen to you because you're not following the Lord. And if you're in the Old Testament survey class, you learned all about that. Um, so a false prophet basically is someone who spreads false messages and teaching about God, right? And his will and intention and gospel while claiming to be speaking for God, right? But they're actually false, Right? And we all, we all know there's false prophets that speak for other gods, right? We know those. But we want to focus on the ones that are trying to infiltrate the church. And so what do these false prophets do that are trying to infiltrate the church? We know the obvious ones, right? They try to lead people away from God. They try to teach things contrary to God's word. But there's something else that false prophets do that's a little less noticeable. And I want you to watch for it in these verses that we're going to look to in Jeremiah I'll put it on the screen for you. I'm going to give you a hint. You're going to need to know your Old Testament history to figure it out. So again, Old Testament survey people, I told you you would need this, uh, whether you liked history or not. Let's see how it goes. Jeremiah 23, 16 through 18. This is what the Lord of armies says. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They are deluding you. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the Lord's mouth. They keep on saying to those who despise me, the Lord has spoken, you will have peace. They have said to everyone who follows the stubbornness of his heart, no harm will come to you. Did you notice what they did? What they did is they offered an easier alternative to the narrow road. They tried to widen the narrow road. Right? We don't have to, uh, to get into everything, right? but basically God set up multiple covenants with his people. Right? Set up an unconditional covenant through Abraham, see that in Jesus. Right? He came in spite of Israel's failing, but God also set up that conditional covenant we just talked about. Right? If you follow me, I will bless you. If you don't follow me, there's going to be destruction that's coming on you. And so true prophets like Jeremiah are telling the people, hey, repent of your sin. There's only one way. Right? You need to follow the Lord. This is the narrow road. And the false prophets are saying, you know what? It's okay. Everything's okay. Right? Just keep doing what you're doing. God knows you're doing your best. And that's good. Just widening. Just widening that road a little bit. That's what false prophets will do. It's not always obvious. They just want to widen that road a little bit. When God calls us to the narrow road. So how do false prophets make it into the church, right? Look in our text. What do you see? 
We see right at the start, they are disguised, right? Sometimes as sheep and sometimes as under-shepherds, right? As, as leaders, pastors in the church. Some commentators think that sheep's clothing could be referring to the clothing that the shepherds would wear, right? So you can take either trend um, interpretation that you want. I think practically we see it play out in both ways in the church. And I see this as putting a responsibility on the sheep. And if you're missing the metaphor, you're the sheep, okay? This is the model, right? This model where we just listen to everything the pastor says and think that it's gospel and that it's gold is garbage, right? I'm sinful. I will fail. It's possible that I'm going to teach you something that's wrong. It's very likely that I'm going to teach you something that's not fully developed, and I will most assuredly not teach you perfectly. Only Christ can. Only Christ can. So hone your skills of discernment, right? Both in reading your Bible and looking at people's lives, this fruit that we're, ta- that we're talking about. Pray about the things that you're taught. Pray about the people that you're listening to. And if something's off, go to that person in kindness. Make sure you don't forget the kindness part. Sometimes as Christians, we can forget that, right? And if they respond with grace, right? You found yourself a sheep, right? And if they respond without grace or continue to contradict primary teachings of Scripture, primary, you may have found a wolf, right? But we need to do this. It's the sheep's job. Yes, it's the shepherd's job to drive away wolves, but it's also the sheep's job when the wolf is actually the shepherd. So how do I recognize false prophets, right? The text is pretty clear, right? How do we guard against false prophets? You know them by their fruit, right? They can't claim to follow Christ but not have real genuine fruit in their life, But I think the second thing is important here to talk about right now. And it kind of connects with the other thing that we can do that scripture gives us. But this is a real reason to value the local church, right? In the interconnected world that we live in right now, with all the teachers that you can have access to from all over the globe and throughout all of history, right? This is a really good thing, right? Most of them are 10 times smarter, more eloquent, uh, more wonderful than I am. But you don't get to test their fruit. You don't get to test their fruit. It's in the local church that you get to test the fruit of the ones that are teaching you, right? So you can test their doctrine, right? That's what we're going to look at in a second. That's important. That's good. Do that. But you don't actually get to test their fruit. It's very difficult. You can try, right? But it's very difficult to test their fruit. So learn from them, yes, right? But be wary, right? Because I've watched many a Christian go down poor road um, because of this, right? So we see this, right? We know this, that we can test doctrine, right? And we can test fruit, and both are important, but it's interesting that Jesus chooses the fruit as the test that he prescribes here in this case. So how do I stay on the road instead of in the ditches, right? Because there's normally two ditches when it comes to false teachers, right? The first ditch is the, the ditch of ignorance, apathy, lacking wisdom, right? What happens to sheep that are ignorant, apathetic, unwise, don't ever look out for danger, know how to spot it, start wandering off? They get torn apart by wolves, right? right? You need to listen to these people and then you test it against God's word. And hopefully you're also able to test their fruit. Get the counsel of other wise Christians. Say, hey, I listened to this person. What do you think? What do you think about these things? Right? In an age where anybody can put anything online, Right? Preachers, podcasters, book writers easily become popular. Right? There are people in the Christian book section that they are not Christians. 
I can tell you from far away they're not Christians. I can tell you from their Instagram they're not Christians, right? I don't even ha- I don't have to get that close, right? We have to be careful. We have to be careful. Don't get caught up with those things. I also would encourage you, don't just foolishly chase after controversies and wild theories. Brothers and sisters, it's hard enough to live for Christ. It's hard enough to be a man and woman of God right now in everything that God calls you to do without getting so concerned about wild things. Live for Christ. And don't get caught up with the preachers who are much more eloquent than the small town preachers, but they don't actually preach Christ, right? It's not, good. it's not good for your soul. The second ditch is the opposite, right? And I see many a good brother and sister go into this ditch too, right? And that's that everyone's a false teacher. If I, if I disagree with anything about you, you're a false teacher, right? And we must be rid of you, right? If you see something as off in their teaching, consider the circumstances. Is this a primary doctrine or a secondary one? What do they teach on the essential doctrines of who God is, right, and the gospel? What fruit can you discern from their life, right? You need to discern if they're a brother or sister, right, or if uh, and there's something that you just disagree with or if they are actually leading people astray. If they're actually leading people astray, run. If it's not, pray for them and yourself, right, that the truth would be made known because you guys disagree on something. John Piper and I don't agree on everything, right? I don't think he's a false teacher, right? I hope he doesn't think I'm a false teacher, right? The elders and I, we, if you put all the elders in a room, we don't agree on everything. That, 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 we're not just going to start calling each other false teachers, right? We've seen the, I've seen the fruit in these men's lives. They love the Lord, right? And we have different views on certain things, right? Some are underdeveloped. Some of them are wrong. Probably some of my stuff is wrong. Right? But I, pr- I pray that I would be shown that and can correct. If I look back at my life 10 years ago, the things that I believe now compared to what I believed then, right? I'm very grateful for the grace of Christians in my life right? who taught me and helped me and were gracious with me in these things. So just walk that road. Stay in the middle. right? Don't be apathetic. Be on guard. It's important. It's serious. Um, but at the same time, don't just throw everyone else out. You can disagree with what they say. Don't listen to that. If you disagree with that particular teaching, throw it out, leave it, pray about it, right? But don't just throw them out because you could be missing a brother or sister in Christ and what they have and what God has gifted them in and what he has shown them in a different area that is beautiful. So it all comes down to this. Obey Christ, not false teachers. Here's our last section, a warning against false salvation. This is a hard one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. This passage troubles my soul, I think more than any other passage in the Bible. Because I think, I believe, that there are thousands and thousands of North American Christians marching right up to the gates of hell with a Bible in their hand, believing that they are saved. And I don't want that for any of you. This should be terrifying, right? We need to be known by God, and we need to actually 
do the will of God. Notice that. Notice both. You have to be known by God and you have to do the will of God. So what are some of the things that lead us astray? What are some of the things that can lead us into thinking we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but they're actually inadequate? I took some of these from a really good article that I found, and I'm going to give you some quotes from it in a second. The first one's this. Correct doctrine is inadequate on its own. Right? It's good, but it's inadequate on your own. Correct doctrine does not save you. I want you to notice. I hope your Bible's still open. Look at the text. What did they do? These people knew the proper term to call Jesus. This is what Greg Moore says. He's the one who wrote this article. It's called, I Never Knew You, Fatal Dreams of the Religious Lost. This is what he said. Calling him Lord proved their orthodoxy, they may have thought. They knew something every child of God knew to say. They did not approach him as a mere prophet or religious teacher. They addressed him as exalted majesty. That part hit me. They knew the scriptures, the books to read, and which podcasts to follow. But by calling, but calling on him as Lord did not open the kingdom of heaven to them. As the scene shows in full sobriety, knowing the right mantras, solas, verses, or doctrines is not sufficient for eternal life. You can't just have good doctrine. It's not enough. Number two. Emotions are inadequate. You can't simply feel close to God and be saved. You can't just feel close to God. That's not good enough. Don't walk up to heaven's gate with, I feel that way, right? You can't, there's people that are like, oh, I can even like feel the presence of God. I must be saved. That is not enough. Emotionalism is not enough to save you. We were just talking earlier, sometimes we think Baptists need to have more emotion, right? Those of you who are saved, right? Well, let's give it a little bit more juice, right? But emotions in itself, they are not enough to save you, right? Notice what these people are doing. Look in our text, right? You actually have to live for him to demonstrate that you've been saved. These people are calling out, Lord, Lord. They were enthusiastic. They were confident, I bet you if you asked these people if they felt close to God, they said, yes, of course I feel close to God. If I ask you, do you feel close to God? Yes, I feel close to God. That's not enough. What does Jesus say? Away from me. I never knew you. Here's number three. Activity can be deceptive. Notice how all these texts are fitting together from the narrow road through the fruit and the false teachers into this. This is why our definition of fruit is so important because activity can be deceptive. One more quote from Greg. He says this, they thought and felt and acted at times like saints. Notice that. But their lives were marked by self and sin. They listened to the Sermon on the Mount only to go away, not to cut off limbs of lust, nor cease their adulteries, or end the hatred toward their brother, nor renounce the love of money, nor forgive their neighbor, nor relinquish their anxieties, nor resolve to be charitable in their judgments. But it is all by faith in and love for the preacher. You can't have faith in and love for the preacher unless you do what the preacher says. In case you're missing the metaphor, it's not me, it's Jesus. Don't miss this. This whole Sermon on the Mount that we've gone through, all these things that God's calling you to do, 
You can't just go away and not do them and say, oh yeah, but I love Jesus. I love the preacher. I love the one who gave the message. That message was so good. You need Jesus to change your heart. So I want to ask you this question because I care about you more than anything. Are you really saved? Is there real fruit, genuine fruit in your life? I was listening to a sermon um, by Paul Washer and um, in part of it he talked about the sinner's prayer and I agree with him and it's harsh but I think it's true. In it, um, he talks about how he believes that the sinner's prayer is um, perhaps the thing that has sent more people to hell in the past number of decades than anything else. You say, Mark, how, how, can, how do you say that? Because I believe that it's true. Show me in scripture where they evangelize in a way where it says, Go pray a prayer, make sure you're really sincere, and God will save you. That's not what the scriptures teach us. That's not what the scripture just taught us today. The scriptures teach us that we have to be moved from death to life. And the only way that you can be moved from death to life is the power of the Holy Spirit working inside you to save you. It's not enough just to pray a prayer and think that you were sincere. And for those of you who may have been sold that from somebody else, I am sorry. That is wrong. So if that is you, and I ask you, how do you know that you are saved? What is your answer? If I walked up to you and said, how do you know that you are saved? What is your answer? And my prayer is not that you would tell me, well, this one time I prayed a prayer and I felt sincere. The Apostle Paul calls us, he says, make your calling and election sure. That's not how we make our calling and election sure. How we make our calling and election sure is by looking at the fruit that God has produced in our life because he's actually changed us. There is no one to be more pitied than the Christian who walks and sits in church their whole life and marches right into hell, believing that they are saved because for a moment in their life they were sincere, but for the rest of their life they didn't love Christ. Brothers and sisters, if this is you, I'm not trying to be harsh. I care about your eternity. Think long and hard about these things. And if you are saved, praise God for that. He is so good. He is so good. I want to just close with this. From Ephesians 2.10, I want to read a passage of scripture because Jesus died for you. He didn't die just for a moment of sincerity so that you hoped you wouldn't go to hell. He died so that you would have life, so that you would be changed from the inside out. This is what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ through the blood of Jesus. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. There's our salvation, but then notice what's next. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works after we've been changed. The works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Praise God. Let's pray. God, I'm just so grateful for the people that are here today. God, I know that you have been working on my heart like crazy and I pray that you would be doing the same for each person here. God, I pray that they would not hear my words, Lord, but um, that by your word, right, the power of your word, that you would move us, God. That if there's someone here today um, who maybe got taught something by someone that was false long ago, God, I pray that they would take today as the day um, to... Uh, rectify their standing before God. Lord, that you would come in and change their hearts, give them true life, Lord, so that we can be with God. We thank you for that. And for those of um, us in this room who are Christians, God, I pray that we would have more boldness. Lord, we know people in our lives, I bet you, who have been sold a false bill of goods. God, I pray that we would be the ones to go and care enough about them, to talk to them about it. God, I pray that for all of us, we would be convicted, God, by knowing what true fruit is. God, we, we don't want to just produce a little bit of good fruit. We want our trees to be overflowing, God, not for our glory, but for your glory alone. We pray all these things in the wonderful, matchless, and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You guys are fantastic. Thank you so much. I'll be up here if you've got questions or you want prayer. If not, have a good week, and we will see you all next week. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.